Uh, I want to uh, thank Pastor Chuck, thank the session for allowing me to once again fill the pulpit as I continue to uh, work toward my pastoralship, and hopefully that will get uh, done soon. Um, so, if you don't know, you should know, I'm going through the uh, first epistle of John, and uh, thus far, uh, well, we've learned a couple of things. Last, or last time I preached, uh, we learned that John, in his epistle, is going to give his audience three tests by which they can assure themselves of their union with Christ, that they are truly born again believers. Now, that first uh, test was the test of obedience. He said, if anyone claims to know God and yet does not obey his commandments, he is a liar. Not, uh, not very charming words, but true words nonetheless. So, uh, today we are going to look into the second test that John is going to give his audience to assure them of their salvation. And this uh, test is what theologians call the social test or the love test. Okay, so let's go ahead and uh, read uh, today's scripture. It is found in your bulletin if you don't have your scriptures with you. Uh, we will begin with 1 John chapter 2, starting with verse 7. And the word says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment. That, you have ha that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Very good. Now, immediately after reading the text, uh, we're faced with a question. John says that he's writing not an old commandment, and yet immediately in the following verse, he says, I am writing a new commandment. So which is it, John? Old, new, we don't, don't confuse us here, Mr. John. Well, it's old in the sense that the commandment he's going to be, uh, he's going to be giving his audience is originally found in the Old Testament. It was penned by the hand of Moses and it's found in Leviticus. All right, now it's new in the sense that Jesus reintroduces this commandment in the upper room while he's instituting the Lord's Supper. And while he's in instituting the Lord's Supper, he tells his uh, disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, 
Again, that original commandment was found in the Old Testament, found in Leviticus 19.18. And if you recall, uh, there is a time when Jesus was asked, uh, what is the most important commandment? And so Jesus replies and says, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. The second second most important commandment is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So he was quoting from the Old Testament, and now as Jesus gives the commandment once again, he tweaks it a little bit, and now instead of saying, or instead of loving your neighbor, he says that we ought to love each other. And instead of um, loving as we love ourselves, we are to love as Jesus has has loved us. Now, this doesn't mean that you no longer have to love your neighbor. Of course, we still have to love our neighbor. Um, However, what what this does mean is that Christian love has Christ's sacrificial love as its model, and it should be primarily expressed within the community of believers. All right, now one thing, just on a side note, that I want us to, uh, to see is what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, by this, men will know that you are my disciples, if you have all your theological ducks in a row. Or, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you give, give away your goods to the needy, no, he simply said that love, love is the mark of a Christian. Uh, Francis uh, Schaeffer, one of the uh, 18th or 20th century uh, Christian philosophers, in one of his books wrote that love is the mark of a true Christian. Now, John's concerned, as should be for any good pastor when doctrine begins to divide the church, is that love for one another would turn into hatred and animosity. Now, it's been said that doctrine divides, and as we can see across the Christian landscape, it certainly does. This is why we have so many denominations, because we can't seem to agree on certain doctrines. However, doctrinal division need not breed hatred. I'll say that one more time. Doctrinal division need not breed hatred. Now, in the 18th century, uh, this country experienced what's called uh, the Great Awakening. And in the Great Awakening, there's a lot of prominent figures, two of them being uh, Mr. John Wesley and George Whitfield. Now, both of these men uh, began their, kil- their Christian uh, pilgrimage together in the college dorm room. Now, as they studied the word, uh, Mr. George Whitfield got a hold of a tulip. And soon enough, as you can imagine, him and Mr. Wesley started butting heads certain, certain doctrines. Now, this, eventually it came to a point where they just went their own ways. They, they could not seem to get along because of these doctrinal divi- this doctrinal division. However, as time went on and they got older, they matured, uh, they reconciled. They reconciled and, um, as a matter of fact, at the request of Mr. George Whitfield, he had John Wesley preach at his funeral. So that goes to show that we can have our doctrinal divisions, and yet love will always trump that division. Now, a couple of years later, after uh, Mr. Whitfield had passed away, someone asked uh, Wesley, do you think you're going to see uh, Whitfield in heaven? What do you think uh, Mr. Wesley's reply was? That's exactly what he said. He said no. But that's not all he said. He said, (laughs) 
He said, no, George Whitfield was so bright a star in the firmament of God's glory and will stand so near the throne that no one like me, who am blessed in the least, will catch a glimpse of him. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Those doctrinal divisions, eventually, uh, Mr. Wesley came to really, really love Mr. Uh, George Whitfield. Now, I'd like to think that Mr. when Mr. Wesley and uh, Whitfield were reunited, reunited in heaven, that Mr. Whitfield approached Mr. Wesley with a tulip and said, I told you... <laughs> I told you. Well, we'll find out when we're all up there. Uh, to give you a more contemporary example, we all know well Mr. R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. Now, R.C. Sproul and MacArthur, um, again, were divided by, by doctrine, uh, specifically the ecclesiology-type doctrine, uh, doctrine of the church. Um, as you know, Mr. Sproul was a staunch Presbyterian, and uh, Mr. MacArthur is a Baptist. Now, if you haven't heard their debate on baptism, I recommend that you go this afternoon to your home and listen to that debate. It is a very good debate, and I won't tell you who wins, but I will tell you this. I hope that MacArthur packed two lunches that day because uh, <laughs> you know why. You know why. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, Again, these are examples of doctrinal division within the church where, yes, we, we tend to, to differ on certain doctrines, and that's fine. If God didn't want us to differ on certain doctrines, he wouldn't have allowed all these denominations that are going around these days. So that's fine. So I believe the reason, and this is just my personal opinion, I believe the reason he allowed these schisms to happen is to see, to kind of test our love for each other, for the church. Are we really going to love our brothers just because we don't agree with them on baptism, on the second coming, on whatever issue, whatever doctrine that, you, that you're on? Are we really going to love our brothers and sisters? If you guys don't know my story, I studied my way into this denomination. I started off as a charismatic, like Mr. Chuck says, handy, handy. <laughs> hanging by the chandeliers and doing all sorts of crazy things. Well, <laughs> eventually um, came to my senses. I got into the Word, and, and I started studying, you know, doctrine, theology and stuff, and I kind of bounced around from church to church uh, because every time I would, I would find a church home, I would study the Word, and I'm like, oh, you know what, this, uh, this is just, I'm not agreeing with it. And it's, it's just a matter of... Uh, a con so it was a conscious thing. I was, just wasn't comfortable, so I would make a church move. Church move. Finally, uh, what brought me here is the doctrine of infant baptism. I have studied covenant theology for about a year, and um, and finally, I got convinced that infant baptism is the correct uh, mode and way to baptize uh, believers and their children. So. Uh, I started searching some, for some Presbyterian churches in, uh, in El Paso and found Christ the King, uh, emailed Pastor Chuck. Chuck warmly invited me to come over, and so I did, and I've been here ever since. That was seven years ago. But when I came to Christ the King, I thought, you know what? I can't wait to be, be with all these Reformed Calvinists. Well, little did I know that a lot of the people here aren't even Calvinists. They're not even Reformed. 
<laughs> and so I, I was faced with, okay, so what are you going to do now, Herman? Are you going to love your church despite the differences uh, in doctrine? Or are you going to make a move just because there, there's a bunch of people that don't necessarily agree with what you believe? So I decided, you know what, this is it. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to finally grow roots here for me and my family. I'm going to love my brothers and sisters, despite if you're a crazy dispensationalist or whatever you are. I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. All right, now, um, on the other side of the spectrum, there are a few Christians out there. Maybe I shouldn't say a few, maybe more than a few, but I'm sure we've all all encountered Christians uh, who are nasty, who are unkind, unloving, uncharitable, simply because we are not on the same page uh, theologically. Um, I remember a few years back when I was on social media, uh, one of the things that I would constantly see on a daily basis were debates about doctrine and, and theology on social media, and people would get really nasty with each other. And not only that, but also political views and whatever else uh, there is out there to argue about. Christians really get serious about these things, and they turn really, really nasty. So, being the new Calvinist that I was, I admit that I got into a few squabbles um, on Facebook and whatnot, Twitter, uh, over certain things, but uh, as time passed by, I started to realize that, you know, I was really developing like a quarrelsome type spirit, which is something the Bible forbids. The Bible forbids us to be quarrelsome with each other. So, I soon deleted all my social media, and I'm no longer on social media. Uh, but that is one of the places where I've noticed it's a cesspool. It could be a cesspool for a lot of this hatred uh, within uh, Christianity. So, what does John have to say about those that say that they're in the light, yet they hate their brother? John says that they are still in darkness. In other words... They are not truly believers because genuine believers walk in the light just as Jesus walked in the light and is the light. Now, notice, I want you to notice one thing here that John says, and he said it, uh, he said it in the previous uh, message that I gave, where he says, if you say that you know God, or if you say that you're in the light, notice that non-believers always say, 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 they talk and talk, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Genuine believers, we don't have to go around boasting about, oh, well, I'm in the light. You know, I know God. We don't have to go around saying that. We simply let our actions speak for themselves. Now, last week, uh, our beloved pastor mentioned uh, some millennial stuff and uh, also baby boomers he threw in there. Regrettably, 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 he forgot my generation. The best generation, Generation Xers. I am Generation X. So if you're in your 40s and your 50s, you, I'm sure you would agree that the 80s were the best, was the best decade when it comes to music, when it comes to movies, uh, everything. 70s. No, we'll stick with the 80s. Kids, kids, if you don't know about He-Man, Thundercats, Go see some of those episodes. You'll love them. You will love them. All right? Now, as a kid, during the 80s, there was a song, a very popular song that came out. This was in 1984 by Tina Turner called What's Love Got to Do? Got to Do with It. 
sure you, I'm sure you, some of you have heard it, right? So as a youth, as a young dad, I would sing this song. What's love got to do, got to do with it? Well, eventually I grew up, and I started listening to what Miss Turner was saying, and it turns out that the song, kind of a Debbie Downer. It's uh, not exactly the love song you want to you wanna sing. Uh, lyrics like... Uh, What's love but a second-hand emotion? Uh, who needs a heart when the heart can be broken? I mean, talk about cynicism, right? But once, once I, um, I understood the background of the, of the song and her story, I, I kind of understood why she wrote that song. Apparently, she had a very, very difficult marriage with her husband, Mr. Ike Turner. Um, and so she... Uh, came back, it was her comeback song in the 80s, is What's Love Got to Do With It song. Now, if you've experienced any sort of heartache in your life, I'm sure at some point uh, you might have had the, um, the temptation to fall into that same trap of cynicism when it comes to love. You know, I know that I myself have, have faced a lot of uh, personal heartache in my life, and so there's been times where I've really had to fight that cynicism spirit because you tend to think, well, you know, you, you love people and then they turn their back on you, they betray you, all sorts of things happen. And so you just started thinking, you know, what's not, what's, you, because when you love someone, you're, you're vulnerable to that person, right? Well, um, <clears throat> love can mean or does mean different things to a lot of different people. But in the final analysis, as Dr. Sproul would say, it only matters how God defines love and how he expects us to express that love. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, uh, you know that uh, what's considered the love chapter is found in 1 Corinthians 13. This is where Paul writes, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give, give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I am nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Later on in the chapter, Paul goes on to say, But now faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I don't know about you, but every time I read that, that scripture, I shrink back in my seat because I realize that I'm nowhere the loving darling that God wants me to be. I am so far removed from this description of love that, you know, you, you kind of want to be like, well, you, you want to be in despair at, at some point because I can't love the way it's described here. But I'm sure one of you, one of you, maybe two, might be deceiving yourselves and thinking, well, Herman, I'm a loving person. I don't know about you, but I am. I love my family. I love my friends. I provide for them. I take them out to lunch. But what did Jesus say about that? Jesus, in the 
Sermon on the Mount says, what did he say? He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that for you? For even sinners love those that love them. It's easy to love our family, sure. Easy to love those who love us, who tolerate us, sure. What about your enemies? You love your enemies? You love your neighbors? If I was to line up your, your, your enemies right now and ask them what they thought about you, I'm sure some of you would have a longer line than most, than some of us, going out the door. But if I was to ask them, how would you perceive so-and-so? Are they a loving person? What would be their response? Well, some may say, man, that guy Ugo, he's the most arrogant, unkind, unloving person I know. Or, or they say, you know what, I can't stand that guy Ugo, but at the end of the day, I got to admit, he is a loving guy. What would it be? All right? So we, we want to tend to think that it's the latter. But if we're honest with ourselves, we, we're probably not the loving person that we should be. Now, again, it's easy to look at this description of love and think, you know what, I'm not capable of loving like that. Um, but John didn't let his audience off the hook that easy. He says that God doesn't only command us to love, but he has enabled us to do so. And how does he enable us to love? By giving us the Holy Spirit who is love. So we, no matter what our background is, some of us blame our circumstances, our upbringing, and say, you know what, I can't love because I was never showed love. Well, if you're saved, trust me, you've, shown, you've been shown the greatest love that there is in Jesus Christ. Okay, now, every now and then, if you're a uh, sermon listener, like I am, I listen to a lot of sermons every day. I'm sure Pastor Chuck listens to a lot of sermons uh, throughout the week. Um, Good pastors that know their congregation well will scold their congregation when needed. Not all the time, but when needed. Some scolding is needed. Uh, we've all experienced Mr. Chuck scolding from time to time. But a good pastor always, always after he scolds, reminds his, his flock of the gospel and the comfort that we have in knowing Jesus Christ. So John, doing the same thing for the first couple chapters here, he's kind of been scolding his audience. He's been telling them, you know, if you say you know God, and yet you do not obey his commandments, you are a liar. How many of us like to be called a liar, even though we know we are, but we don't like when other people tell us we're liars, right? So, um, not very, uh, again, (laughs) choice of words, but John is telling the truth. Uh, but now he wants to comfort. He wants to comfort those who are in his audience who truly are born again, who truly are believers. And this is, in poetical fashion, he kind of inserts this little poem where he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, Theologians differ on whether John is speaking to the young kids and to young men and the older, the older people in the crowd. Um, I tend to believe that he's talking more of a spiritual, uh, spiritual uh, maturity type of, um, of people here. So he's comforting, comforting them, letting them know that 
Jesus Christ, uh, because of his sacrifice on the cross, is now we are able to know God, we have been forgiven of our sins, and we're able to enjoy Christ and fellowship with God and victory over the evil one. So, there you have it. The second test, known as the love test, uh, to assure you of your, cri- of your union with Christ. Now, after hearing that, do you feel more assured of your salvation? Or does your lack of love for the church give you doubts about where you stand? Well, rest assured, my CTK family, that there is one who loves perfectly. There is one who loves, who, per- who is perfectly kind, who is perfectly patient, one that is not easily provoked, and one that does not keep a record of our wrongs. His name is Jesus Christ, the embodiment of love. Jesus loves us perfectly because God loves us perfectly. And what did God do to demonstrate his love for us? The Bible says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while yet we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus told his disciples, greater love has none than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So even on our worst days when we are the most unloving, unkind, and unfriendly, Jesus loves us. He loves us like you'll never believe. Um, it is a constant love. It is an everlasting love. And to answer Tina Turner's question, what does love got to do with it? That que- our answer is everything. Everything. Love is everything. So I'll end the sermon with t- uh, words of Jesus. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be here this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you, Father, for your word that never returns to you void. We ask that your word would do a work in us, Father, that you would transform us from the inside out, that you would grant us new love for one another and for you. Thank you, Father, for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.